a lot of things are timeless, but unfortunately this podcast is not actually it will be timeless because this will be on social media for years oh, happy friday everyone welcome to the third episode of yas tea the young asian americans for biden or as we like to call ourselves yasby podcast in this episode our social media and digital communications co-director, Shia, and one of the APIs for Biden interns, Ishani, speak with Rani Chatterjee, an author, economist, and professor of business and public policy at Duke University, and former senior economist in the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Rani is now running for treasurer in North Carolina, a state with an expanding and critical API population that can help lift him, Joe Biden, Cal Cunningham, and dozens of other down-ballot Democratic candidates into office. We originally recorded this conversation at the beginning of September and are releasing it now as part of our focus on swing states where APIs will be the margin of victory this fall. With that, here is Shia, Ishani, and Rani Chatterjee. Welcome to Chat with Chatterjee. Rani Chatterjee is a professor a former professor at Duke and the former economic advisor to President Obama, and he is currently the North Carolina treasurer candidate. How are you today, Ronnie? Doing great. Thanks for being here, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so can you introduce yourself and give us some background about yourself? Sure, I'd love to. Well, so I grew up in upstate New York and uh, went to school nearby where I grew up and studied economics. And that was a really formative experience for me because I sort of figured out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, which is kind of use economic policy to make people's lives better. And so I did my PhD in economics after working for a bit in New York and uh, came to Duke University where I've been a professor for over 14 years. I really thought I was gonna keep doing economics and uh, using it in government and in academia, but a lot of it changed when President Obama was elected in 2008. And uh, that's why I love the name of the show, Yes We Can. You know, if you think about Yes We Can, was what inspired me to get involved in politics. And so started working on the Obama campaign. And uh, we'd be glad to tell you how that evolved. But over time, just grew so much in terms of my interest in politics and policy and decided in um, May of 2019 to run for office here in North Carolina and try to become the first Asian American person ever elected statewide in our state's history. And uh, it looks like in 70 some days, we got a great chance to do that. Yeah, that's, that's amazing uh, to hear about, especially you brought up your work with Obama um, under the Obama administration. So can you tell us a little bit about what it was like working in the Obama-Biden administration and especially dealing with economic policy in the wake of the greatest recession since the Great Depression? Yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I'll start just as an economist. As an economist, when you come into a job like that, on the heels of what was then the biggest downturn since the Great Depression. And I fear we might be entering something worse right now, but at that time it was certainly true. You're drinking from a fire hose, trying to figure out all the information that you need to get. And some of the playbook hasn't been invented yet. And so while you can study history and understand what people have done in the past around economic policy, a lot of it you're kind of creating on the fly. And what was so difficult is our country was also very divided during that period. So as we sought to improve the economy through things like stimulus package or Dodd-Frank and the Affordable Care Act on the healthcare piece, we faced a, a really partisan environment in the country, one that you're still seeing the shocks of today. That being said, it was just a great experience to see how policy gets made from uh, the federal government perspective. It also reminded me though that a lot of policies that impact our lives actually get translated to the state and local government area. And it kind of um, nurtured the interest that I had in that. 
as an individual, it was just amazing to work for a president you believe in. I mean, when you get a job like that, there's these thrilling moments where, you know, you get to speak with the president, attend meetings with them. Uh, of course, Vice President Biden is a riot and got to talk to him as well. Um, just seeing how President Obama would run a meeting and how he make decisions was amazing. And Vice President Biden, I remember when we met for the first time, he said, if I had your hair, I'd be president. And I remember thinking like, that would stick with me, right? I don't know anything else about what he said that day in the speech, but I remember what he said to me and my wife. And I think that also taught me a lot about how people make connections in politics and how, you know, what sticks with you. When he ran for president, I always remembered that. And it's so great to see him as our nominee here in the Democratic Party. So both from an economist perspective and from just an individual, transformative experience in terms of working on policy, but also being uh, to quote Hamilton, you know, in the room where it happened. As a Hamilton fan, I absolutely love that reference. Favorite Same. song yeah. on the album? That's, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm like, the great thing, I know with Hamilton, if I quote it, everyone's going to nod their head. Unfortunately, <laughs> some of my other television and movie interests are so obscure that, you know, I can't use those references. But Hamilton, I'm always, I'm always money on those. Ooh, what are the other TV show and movies? So, huge fan of a one season on HBO of The Watchmen, which is a fantastic show. I'm a big sucker for superhero shows, especially ones that are adapted to dystopian futures, which seems like a lot of them. But I love The Watchmen. <laughs> very, very excited about that show. And then on Amazon Prime, The Man in the High Castle, another alternative kind of history story, fantastically creative, big fan of that as well. And of course, like in between that, you have to watch things like Indian matchmaking and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> Do I need to say that? I mean, that, yeah, right. And, uh, and actually, I actually watched Mindy Kaling's uh, show as well, um, Never Have I Ever, which is, you know, I'm not the target of exactly, but, um, you know, it's really cool to see people who look like us on TV, you know, and I think my wife and I, even the shows that, like, aren't necessarily targeted at us at our age or somewhere like that, it's just exciting to see somebody who's like us, because when we were kids, like, you'd call people if you saw an Indian person on TV, you'd be like, hey, look, <laughs> it's just it's commonplace and they're allowed to play different characters and have different personalities and not fit into a stereotype so um that's the I, we tend to watch shows with basic people in them just you know by habit too that's so cool i know never have i ever that was actually like i was expecting it to be a good show but it was like number one on netflix when i decided to watch it and i was like baby is like it's a little too similar if you know what i mean yeah but it was really cool to see because when we were growing up i think jesse was the only tv show that, like, oh dude yeah and then robbie <laughs> and then the stereotypical, like, character with Ravi, where he was just, like, oh, good at math, but he was, like, socially awkward, and they didn't have, like, the dynamic of, in Indian people, there's different types of people, obviously. They always just have that one character of, oh, all I do is math. <laughs> and, and we'll talk about this later, because I have talked a lot about math and being a nerd during my campaigns. So I'm also somewhat guilty of this, but... What I liked about the Indian matchmaking show is that you got to saw lots of different kinds of Indian people, which was great on one show. And there wasn't just one stereotype. And that, that to me, there are other problems with that show from a social commentary perspective, but just in terms of seeing multiple characters with different personalities, that is really amazing. And so I think, you know, that's what's been cool for me to witness kind of the evolution in pop culture. And it also relates to just what people are familiar with. And when I go around North Carolina, uh, people haven't watched those shows, but they certainly have gone to school with someone who's Indian, their physician might be Indian, they know an engineer in their town, a university professor, somebody who looks like me has made an impact on their life. And I think the more folks get out in pop culture, the more run for elective office, I think that'll continue. And uh, it's definitely been something that's helped me in my campaign. So it's so cool that you mentioned there's like not as many people who look like you, but the ones who do look like you like have made an impact. So like, have you personally faced any adversity as AAPI in politics in North Carolina specifically, or 
at, during your career since there's not necessarily people that look like us in the state of North Carolina currently? Yeah, I mean, what I'll say is the biggest thing for me is just to overcome the lack of familiarity. We ran a television ad during the campaign, which just played on me being a nerd and having my kids making fun of me. And I think when people were able to see that, you know, Chatterjee, you can see it on Zoom here, it has like 15 letters or whatever it is, you know, it's unfamiliar to people, right? But when they see an ad or they see that you're just a regular person, it, I think a lot of that goes away and they say, okay, you know, I can vote for someone. So we haven't had that challenge. In fact, people have been responding really well to the ads we've done, to the message. I'm sure there'll be some people I'll meet around the way who won't see it that way. But I would say it's, it's been good so far and I feel very well accepted. I wasn't sure going in. I mean, no one's ever done this before. We've never had a person like me run for a statewide office. I mean, even nationally, when you think about statewide offices getting elected across the entire state, by my count, I think we have like four Indian Americans in history who have done that. And, um, you know, people like Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley um, and, uh, and then Kamala Harris, of course, counts there. And Josh Call, who's Attorney General of Wisconsin. And so there's four. So it hasn't really been done in that many places. And then here, forget Indian, just being Asian American. Um, and uh, has, has, has never happened before at the statewide level. So a lot of people are probably looking at my campaign as an experiment. And, uh, but I've always bought into this idea that no one's ever going to give you a green light and say, we are now ready for this kind of candidate. You know, you know how they have those articles, like, is America ready for this? America, Come on. You know, no, you, you make people ready by the campaign you run and by meeting people where they're at and, and running an effective sort of political campaign. So I think when you do that, you answer the question for you. So that's what we're trying to do in 2020. That's amazing. So how do you energize your crowds? Like, how do you, like, you obviously seem very, like, super passionate and, like, ready to go for November 3rd. How have you been inspiring, like, people who support you or people who don't necessarily support you yet? Well, I love that. People who don't necessarily support me yet. That's you always got to be thinking positive. It's like my mom, she would say, you know, strengths and not yet strengths. So that's like optimistic, right? One is, okay, Zoom is the whole new medium, right? What I think is so interesting is we used to take classes with things like Toastmasters, you know, to improve our public speaking. Everything I learned about how to teach, about how to communicate was based on that method of being in front of people, engaging them, getting to see their reactions. Well, you guys know this better than I, but communication's changing and Zoom changed it for everyone all at once. And so now all the things we've learned have to be adapted for a completely different medium. And I actually think, you know, if this whole political thing doesn't work out, you know, I should be doing Toastmasters for Zoom because I've learned so much about how to communicate on that medium. You can't always see people's reaction the same way, particularly when you're doing a Zoom chat with 50 people, you can't watch every window. Um, you can't always, if you're making a joke or you're trying to make a serious point, you can't always see how it landed because people are on mute. And so you don't hear the audience interaction. So you have to relearn a lot of what you know about public speaking and adapt to these new mediums. And I feel blessed in some ways to be able to do that during a really critical period because I feel like this type of communication is going to be very useful in the future. And a lot of times later in your career, you don't get used to using new platforms if you're not forced to. It's the same way like my mom and dad have to get used to sending texts and it's like nothing for me. You guys are on platforms that are harder for me to use. I don't use them all the time. Zoom is something I'm on all the time. Video conference are things I'm doing all the time. And I think that's going to be an important part of the skill set. So Zoom has been the most important tool. When you're on the Zoom, you know, we're just trying to bring in special guests where we can. We've done events with Cal Penn. We've done events. Uh, we will have one with Vivek Murthy from uh, the Surgeon General's office, the former Surgeon General. Dan Pfeiffer from Pod Save America. Reggie Love, uh, President Obama's body man and former Duke basketball player. We're trying to bring in as many people as we can to support the campaign. 
and we're trying to organize them on Zoom and do something different each time. And so that's what we've done to kind of energize people. But it is hard. I, I wish I wish there was better ways to do it, but that's what we're facing uh, during this COVID-19 situation. So on the topic of people that support you and people that are going to support you soon, uh, since people are listening that maybe don't know very much about your campaign, could you kind of tell us a little bit about what areas of public policy you're most passionate about? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the areas I'm most passionate about are healthcare and education, because I think those are the ingredients to a strong economy. And that's kind of what I based my whole career on. And so if you're listening to this and you're interested in learning more, uh, it's ronniechatterjee.com is the website. I'm running for state treasurer in North Carolina, which is the most important position that no one's ever heard of. And the reason, even if you live outside of North Carolina, that you should make an investment in this race with your time, with your financial resources, with your social media presence, is because if you care about electing new candidates, diverse candidates to important positions, you have to look at races like this. I think a lot of folks in our community think that all of a sudden you're just going to see a person from the AAPI community elected to the U.S. Senate, an overnight success story. But you know what? There are no overnight success stories. <laughs> Talk to somebody who's run a successful startup, who's gotten involved in politics, who's done a great nonprofit. I like to call these decade-long overnight success stories. People have put in the work. And if you don't invest in state and local office holders and winning these more obscure races, you're never going to have the bench you need to diversify the top of the ticket. And so I feel like that's one reason. Number two, I mean, we need more people, particularly in the Democratic sort of party, concentrate on economics and finance issues. You know, I hear so much about how Republicans have the edge on the economy. And I just think that more Democrats, particularly people with financial and economic backgrounds, need to get involved. And it can't always just be on Wall Street or in Washington, D.C. It has to be in the states where once you manage a $100 billion with a B pension fund, like I would do if I'm elected, once you are responsible for spending billions of dollars to pay for the health care, of 700,000 state employees, like I would be if I was elected. Once you're responsible for hundreds of millions of dollars of bonds and going to the market to build infrastructure in a state, people will trust you on a lot of other things. And you can establish a credibility with these other offices that people tend to get really excited about in November. So I hope people will check out the website and also my presence on social media. And they can also just contact me directly through those means. And one of the cool things about running for state office is you just meet so many people. And Heck, you know, a lot of the times at home, so we got time to talk. So reach out, and I'd love help from people out there who are interested in campaigns as well. Sorry, couldn't mute myself there. That's <laughs> that's amazing, and it's so cool to see because sometimes people don't realize, especially youth, that politics is more than just what you see on the federal level and more than just a presidential campaign. Like this November third election starts locally because all politics at the end of the day, at least to me, is local, and. <laughs> And to see somebody so energized about, like, actually making change positively, as somebody who just, like, graduated from high school, I understand how important education is, and a lot of the time it is something that's not given as much attention as it should, because it's pretty inequitable, like, that is not the right word, um, not equal around the yes. country. So it's cool to see. And also, when you were talking about Zoom and how, like, this is normal um, for public speaking and interpersonal communication, um, how do you think COVID itself is, has like changed our economic and political climate and how would you rebuild post-COVID? It's, it's a great question. And uh, I'll just pick up on one thing you said though, which is, you know, young folks who are getting involved now, you can make such a difference in terms of this election. Because when I look at the percentage of North Carolinians who are between 18 and 25, it's enormous in terms of their impact. But in terms of the percentage who turn out to vote, it's much lower than and so if we can improve uh, the turnout among young folks, particularly in the API community and in places like North Carolina, where we have 140,000 API voters 
and elections are decided by like 10,000 votes here, uh, it could make a huge difference. And so I'm glad that folks of you are getting excited. I mean, I, would, I was passionate about politics at your age, but I never could have been this entrepreneurial to do something like this. So congrats on that. The second thing I'll say is so many things when I talk to folks your age, and I do a lot just because everyone in the community, people running, my nieces and nephews are around your age, the key things they care about, every time they tell me what they care about, it's almost always a state and local issue. Even look at the discussion in this country about racial inequity and police reform. Those issues are at the state and local level of anything, right? There's a limit to what the federal government can do on some of those issues. And I think time after time, the issues that people care about are closest to home and your state and local leaders who are largely anonymous are the ones making decisions. And if you, if we spend as much time and as much bandwidth as we do following national leaders as we did thinking about investing in state and local, I think we'd be much more sort of happy with our governments and I think we could make a bigger impact. Um, I think COVID, to your question though, is changing a lot on the political side and the economic side. Uh, I'll start with politics. I mean, look at the campaign. I mean, I've been through a few more of these than you and then people twice my age have been through a lot more than I and you, okay? And ask anybody and I mean, this is this very strange campaign. I mean, the candidates generally aren't leaving their, their residences and when they are, they're very sort of tightly held events where you can't bring many people. I mean, for President Trump and for Vice President Biden, the big challenge of not being able to have rallies. I mean, not having a rally, it, it's like, it, you can't explain what politics is like that. People expect you to be out there kissing babies and shaking hands, and I can do neither, right? So think about it like that. There's no rallies. At the same time, the, there's not as much news being made about the race. Usually, reporters are traveling with the campaign, and they're covering it. Every day, there's a story that pops out. Someone says the wrong thing, or there's some off-the-record conversation. We're, we're sort of in this slowdown mode where the news is kind of moving a little more slowly when it comes to the presidential campaign, I'd say. That changes things. There's only really a few inflection points left in a race like this. They've chosen the vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris. They've done the Democratic convention. The Republican convention is now ongoing. And the debates, right? And then whatever else happens. So that's changed a lot in terms of our politics. The second piece on the economy is, is much more profound, though. I think COVID-19 and the slowdown that has resulted has eliminated many jobs that will never come back. I think many businesses are getting accustomed to doing business in a different way, with workers working remotely, for example. And that's had spillover effect on things like downtown real estate and retail services that people used to go to from the office, but now they're not at the office. As we shift the ways we live, work, and play, it's going to impact on all sectors of our economy. And so for young people, I do feel for people right now who are starting off in their careers or starting college or graduating from college, those milestones, the world is, is upside down. And what we need to do is we need to make sure the people who are struggling through this are made whole because we need to make sure they get back to their school, get back to their job, give them the support they need. You know, the research says if you graduate during a recession, your wage much, much later in life will be 10% lower than it would have otherwise been. That's just the bad luck of graduating at the wrong time. Well, we've had a whole generation of people now who've gotten bad luck of being in this country at this time with a global pandemic that's out of control. And we cannot abandon them. We can't make this an unlucky generation. And so we have to have all hands on deck to make sure that we help people who've been affected by this. Um, and sadly, to your other point about education, it's exacerbated some of the other inequalities in our country. Um, education, uh, it's made the climate situation uh, more complicated in a lot of ways, and healthcare inequities as well. So there's a lot of work to do. And I feel like if Vice President Biden is successful, and I think he will be, you'll be looking at a situation that's quite similar in many ways to what I encountered when the Obama administration started in 2009, a rescue of the economy and rebuilding. And uh, that's gonna take a lot of work. Yeah, so going to your point about the changes for current college students and young people, um, I realize a lot of learning happens outside of the classroom from 
life experience. So what was something you did growing up or in college that shaped your career? So I think for me, the biggest things that I did in college were probably in the extracurricular area where I learned a ton was when I was president of my Indian Student Association. That was kind of an interesting experience because I wasn't the type of person in high school who had a lot of Indian American friends. And I didn't know much about that when I, when I joined uh, at Cornell. But um, you know, there were a lot of interesting activities going on, a lot about the culture show, but also about political engagement, the kind of stuff we're doing now. And so I got excited about that and uh, became co-president in, uh, in my senior year. And that was really interesting because it helped me both think about my identity in a different way. You know, I made a lot more Indian American friends during that period. It was a large campus organization with a lot of things to do, you know, two shows and lots of membership activities and, uh, you know, the drama that we all know uh, that go along with any Indian Student Association. You know, it's important to learn that at an early age. I tell people I can manage that, like, you know, I like to be present. I can, I can do it all, right? I can manage it. But, um, and I made a lot of lifelong friends doing that. And I thought a lot about, you know, kind of the skills I learned there in terms of working with people, thinking about sort of identifying common goals and bridging some gaps that are really hard um, to overcome that people have across a lot of different dimensions, whether it's gender or what part of the country they're from or where they trace their heritage or religion. And so that was a really good experience for me in college on the extracurricular side. I would say in the classroom, my economics courses and my political science courses really taught me to be a critical thinker. This is, I think, the most important thing if you're going to go into politics or policy is to be able to think about things critically and not adopt a partisan lens on every single issue that you encounter. And it's something that I think has served me well and allows me to see the other side on many, many different issues. And so, you know, while I have definitely my partisan affiliations, I'm running as a Democrat, I, you know, vociferously support Vice President Biden and Kamala Harris. But, uh, but, but I also can see the other perspectives on a lot of issues. And I think, I think that's helpful. Yeah, and so um, speaking on your experience being the, being the president of the Indian Student um, Association at your college, um, what do you believe that the AAPI youth community can do right now to make the most difference? I mean, you are lucky enough to be living during one of the most important elections that you'll ever see. I mean, people say it's the most important election of our lifetime. I don't know, you guys will live a little longer than me, so there might be future ones, you know. This is definitely the most important one, I believe. And you have an impact on this. And what's amazing is there's AAPI youth in some of the critical swing states. Look at Pennsylvania, look at Michigan, look at Wisconsin, look at North Carolina, look at emerging swing states like Georgia, look at places like Arizona. We have people in those places that could really make the difference, not just on the top of the ticket elections, but also in the U.S. Senate elections, which, frankly, I don't think it's getting enough attention. That's probably going to determine a large part of what you see transformative change in January 2021. And so the question is now, this challenge for you as entrepreneurs, as well as young people, how do you figure out a way to connect with people? You know, not just the people you know who are always voting, who are always really active on social media, but the folks who are less active. Can you really find five people who weren't going to vote that you'll get to vote? Can you find five people that maybe we're going to vote for the other candidate that you can find to vote your way? That's really hard when we live in a world of echo chambers and social networks made by a lot of people like us. And so I think for API youth, can you broaden that circle and bring more people in through your activism? That is the challenge of 2020. And we're going to have to do it all while we're on Zoom. So the degree of difficulty has gone even higher. So I think you can play a critical role. I think this is the election to do it. And I also think the challenges are as complex as they've ever been. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Like um, from personal experience, in addition to working with AAPIs for Biden, I'm working on a lot of local races in Georgia and also working with AAPI organizations in the state. So I think it's extremely important that we mobilize AAPI youth at the state and local level uh, before 
moving on to federal races because that's really what affects us. I think so, Anishani. I think there could be like a reverse coattails effect on some of this too, where you're having an Asian American candidate running statewide in the Democratic Party the first time in history. Maybe that'll also give folks more incentive to turn out. And even people who are going to turn out anyway, maybe more excited, you know, because just like we talked about at the very beginning, seeing people who look like you on TV, seeing people who look like you running for office gets you more excited. And so that's why I would say if you're an API, you can any state, but particularly in the Southeast, you care about these races. I mean, come help us out. We have tons of volunteers. I'm lucky enough to have some of the best volunteers anywhere in politics. We'd love to have you help out in this race. It is um, the great thing is you get to interact a lot um, with the campaign staff, with me, because we're a smaller operation. And in a state like Georgia, oh my gosh, I mean, or North Carolina, so much, I mean, these are states at turning points, really. And, and just a couple thousand votes can make all the difference. And I think about it a lot, um, comparing North Carolina and Georgia. My wife's going to get mad at me being a Georgia native, but, you know, our governor, Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, friend of mine, he was elected with less than 10,000 votes. And that's the difference between our state's policies on things like masks or social distancing or the way they don't control the virus compared to Georgia in some cases. And I feel like, gosh, if such an important decision was determined by 10,000 votes, man, I got 10,000 friends on Facebook, right? We could, we could do this, right? Like, we could do this. And so I feel like let's try to think about our impact at the state local level, but realize how much power we actually have. And I think for API youth, hopefully that will apply. So interesting, <laughs> 10,000 Facebook friends. <laughs> I think if we just invite them all to like a page, we can do it. Oh. I agree. Let's do it. Let's do a Zoom chat. I feel like, look, there's 140,000 API voters in North Carolina, okay? All of them are on social media, I'm sure, but let's just say you could get 1,400, just 1,400, okay? Could we get, like, the biggest Zoom call for, like, get out the vote? Let's, and let's try to get, like, a high-profile surrogate, you know, from the campaign. We, we could do it. You could get 1,400 people on a free Zoom and drive out the vote. We just have to be creative. We got to do this stuff, you know? And we got to spread the word and tell people why it matters. So I, I feel like the same thing. Start on Facebook, go on the other social media. I know you guys don't really use Facebook. It's totally uncool. But, you know, people of my generation, we're still, we're still trying to hang on there. I actually really don't know how to use Facebook, if I'm being honest. Like, all my, like, <laughs> family members and, like, friends in their late 20s and early 30s all use Facebook. And I literally just, I don't know how to share a post. Like, I've tried a lot of times. And I just can't figure it out. I got so. it for political reasons. Like, to connect <laughs> with, like... It was, a, it was all your political tool. Yeah. yeah. I think everyone has their social media platform they're most comfortable with and they try to learn the other ones to keep up. I'm more like on Twitter, I, I kind of starting to understand Twitter and I, I enjoyed it for politics. Facebook is also for me something that you know, I don't really use very much personally, but is important um, for political communication. So I have a Facebook page, we try to build on that. Um, and then Instagram, more emerging, it's really important, obviously, for folks who are voting in the API community who are younger, but we have, you know, we are more kind of like nascent in our Instagram presence. And TikTok don't even get me started, but there's the potential there. You know? So we're gonna keep we're gonna keep working. Ooh, so potentially Ronnie Chatterjee TikTok account coming out. There, hey, yeah. If there's anyone out there who wants to help me build this, let's do it. I'm always up to trying new things. Our Instagram account was really uh, spearheaded by an intern, so we we can do it. So how, that's so cool to see. Like your interns are taking over social media accounts. How has social media changed your campaign this year? Oh, so much. One is you just need people who are natives of different social media platforms to help you. Particularly, I mean, no matter what age you are, I mean, look, if you're, if you're a really young candidate running for the first time, you do need to understand Facebook because a lot of older people are on that. 
If you're an older candidate who's run a bunch of times, like you do need to understand these tools and what's happening. And so for someone like me, he's kind of in the middle, like I'm just trying to learn what I can. And uh, if there's a platform that I see is promising, trying to find something who's really a native to explain to me like what works and what doesn't. And so interns, obviously my younger interns really get Instagram. They live on Instagram. Facebook, you know, we have more, our campaign team is more in charge of that because we have kind of a competency there. Twitter is more just me doing my own tweets because, you know, I'm no, I'm no pro, but I understand the platform a little bit and use it a little bit, you know? So I think that's how you have to think about it. I mean, all these platforms, if you're a user, you just have so much more insight. The conversation on social media is really important. I do think what's interesting is that there's a broad base of people who vote in elections who are not on social media. And so it's easy also to get caught up in how big social media is or something's trending. And then it tends to have no actual significance on the big picture. And I think, look, a lot of younger folks and political junkies are really overrepresented on the social media, particularly Twitter. And so when you move away from that, what seems really important might not be as important when you look at the vote as a whole, particularly because we do also see lower turnout among young people than we would expect. And so there might be a lot of conversation on Twitter, but there's not necessarily people turning out. And so, you know, older folks um, who aren't on social media have a large amount of their election. How, how do you think, like, to energize youth and, like, get them? Because obviously I usually call Twitter, like, the extremities. Like, if you're, like, yeah. really passionate about something, you're on Twitter. But how do you, like, transition that from the social media platform into actually being at the voting polls, especially with everything happening with USPS right now? It is challenging. Yeah, I think um, one is I find, and, and you two are an exception to this, I think that a lot of younger people are, are not that interested in the political labels of the parties. And they don't necessarily, they might be very socially liberal on a lot of issues, but they don't necessarily see the Democrats as always representing them. You know, because there's two major parties in this country, and I've seen up close the impact of having Democrats in power versus Republicans, I tend to see it to be very important to, rep to elect Democrats at different levels of office. I think a lot of people are just sort of, you know, they might identify with the Democrats if they're young, but it's not always something that it's a party label, and they kind of want to shake that off, and they're more comfortable thinking themselves as someone who's a social entrepreneur or someone who's making a difference in their community. And I, I really admire that too, but I think this election is really coming down to is a set of policies and priorities you care about being represented or not. And to my mind, you know, leaders in the Democratic Party in this election are more representative of where the youth of America is. And you're seeing that in lots of polls. Now we have to translate to votes. I think that one thing is the talking points and the regular way of speaking about politics is kind of getting old. I mean, you're seeing people like AOC, you know, base, you know, trip plays a whole new trail of how to do political communication. And so I think if being authentic to who you are, but also trying to stay away from the canned lines of the past and the old way politics used to be would really help. And I, I think that's what we've been seeing as we kind of go around the state and talk to people. I mean, for me, if I could get more people on these Zoom chats who are undecided or more people who are disaffected from politics, it would help me connect with a lot of voters. Unfortunately, people who join your events are mostly people who are already engaged. So it is challenging. I think the other piece will use a lot of communication on social media and television, which still matters, which is kind of surprising to a lot of people. But television still matters, and we'll do a lot of that right around the election to let people know who we are. The sad truth, I think, for a lot of elections is that in the end, you almost have a 30-second window to communicate with people and get their attention. You decide what that 30 seconds is. And especially for races like Treasurer, very few people are going to turn into, tune into a debate or read your website. It's just the number of people who are voting in an election, four or five million, is going to be much more than a, a very low percentage is going to actually delve deep into your policy positions. So you really have that 30-second window to communicate with them. You know, that's why politics, um, you know, sometimes this results surprise people who are only following on social media because there's a whole world out there that makes, makes a difference.
Yeah, and so you were talking about how not that many people will delve deep into issues of policy. And since you are a professor of public policy, um, why do you think it's important for young people to have an education around civic engagement and public policy? Well, I think that you really can't understand the issues that are being debated right here unless you think about them critically and you have some background. I mean, the debate over what to do about climate change, you have to have a base level of understanding of the scientific evidence, the political options, and the impact of those political options on the economy to really understand that. And so I think just adopting the position right or left, I mean, is what a lot of people might do, but I think you're never gonna really understand the issue if you don't defend it well unless you understand all those things. The challenge is it's really hard to acquire that information. It takes work. And so, you know, it'd be great if we could all just read one tweet and know everything we need to know about climate change, but it's, it's a lot of hard work and people are working on other things. You know, for a lot of folks, this might be their passion or it might be a side thing that they're working on their career or they're taking care of family members and they have lots of things going on in their lives. And so I think that's where the role of gatekeepers becomes really important. You know, what media do you trust? If you see a podcast from Fox, you know that it's going to be something you like. Or if you're a Republican, you think that Fox News might be effective. Then the challenge is, like, you know, how reliable are those media sources? What information are you being fed? And are you a critical consumer of the media you're looking at? And I see that to be the biggest challenge right now that's driving a lot of our partisanship. We're seeking out media that confirms our opinions. We don't like to read stuff that we disagree with. Um, in the end, it seems like everyone's spinning so hard that it's really hard to get to the truth. And if we don't have a baseline understanding, uh, which is what I think we need of the issues, uh, we're all just going to become more polarized and finding consensus will be harder. So I think civic engagement is really important. I wish we made more time for it. I know people have other priorities with their education and with their free time. So I think it's a lot to ask, but I try to do this in my classes at Duke and I try to encourage students who are interested in politics to really get a strong foundation. Because again, it, it may be other people who aren't in politics might not, it might be a luxury, but if you're going to be in the office, if you're going to be running for office, you've got to understand the issues in a deep way. That, that I'm sure about. As like a college student, my question now is what classes like would you say are like imperative that all college kids take? I know as somebody who does rely on social media for a lot of news because I don't have cable television anymore because we all moved to stream. And, yeah. um, what classes do you think are like critical for people my age to form their opinions and actually think about the world more than just what's in front of them? So I mean, I definitely have some bias here because I'm a social science person. So I, I will just put that up front. And, but for me, I think economics, political science and sociology are three different areas that someone would need to learn about to really understand how public policy works in the United States. If you, you have to understand the basis of how the economy works and kind of how incentives govern human behavior, um, you need to know some of the terms people are talking about the economy. That's all really important in economics classes and a way of thinking about the world. Political science is also really key because even if you don't know about economics, if you don't understand our political institutions and how they work and how things like polarization or the gerrymandering districts are affecting who votes, I mean, then you're missing a huge part of the picture if you just have that, right? Put those two things together, though, you still have this, these changes in the country along identity, uh, class, right? And how that relates to where people live and where they go to school in deep, deep ways. And I think sociology provides that. So I think there are three different fields there if you really want to get 360 view on a lot of issues. That's even lacking some of the key classes I want you to take to understand the basic scientific foundations of some of these topics, right? Um, legal knowledge that would really help you understand what things now, but that's probably for graduate school. So I do think economic psychology, economic sociology and poli sci would probably be the ones I would take, but you have to be selective. And my psychologist friends are yelling at the podcast right now saying you have to take psychology to understand how you're making decisions. 
I agree with that too. And, uh, but then your class schedule is getting pretty, pretty crowded, especially if you're pre-med, right? So, you know, how are we gonna fit all this in? Well, I took intro to psych in high school. So I think- That's your old dog, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. I actually, a little while back, I wrote a governor's honors program essay about the importance of sociology and like <laughs> studying that. It's great. I mean, a lot, a lot of, and, you know, people go to school for different reasons, right? I mean, I, that's the other thing I remember. I mean, even as a college professor, you would love people to, you know, delve deep in their education and be as passionate about it as I am. You know, so many folks are coming to college and it's super expensive. They're borrowing money to do it. Their parents are borrowing money to do it. And their biggest concern is, can I get a job at the end? And I think that's very reasonable. And uh, there was a time when folks could go to college and they maybe could have the luxury maybe of not thinking about that so much. And I think a lot of professors lament the fact that students are very pre-professional these days. I tend not to put it so much on the professors or the students and tend to think it's just a big shift in how expensive college is and how difficult it is to go out of college and not get the job, especially when you're graduating in an economy like this one. So I think students are really focused by and large, the ones, um, the ones who have to be on getting a job. And those few who have the luxury to kind of not think about that, maybe it's easier to take some of these, some of these classes for fun. I do think economics, poli-sci, sociology, psychology are great foundations for a lot of jobs. I'm just trying to say that a lot of people aren't thinking about their education necessarily as building a person. They think about building a career. I get that, and, uh, and uh, I understand that. And until the economics of college change, it's going to be really hard to look at it in a different way. Yeah, and as you were saying, there's a lot of students focused on just building a career out of their education. And as a professor, you obviously deal with a lot of different types of students with different types of backgrounds. So if you could go back and give yourself as a college student advice, what would it be? Yeah, get a haircut, get contacts earlier. No, that's totally, totally different. That was, that's on the personal side. But what would I say to college students? One is that your life, especially in college, can be an experiment. You can try different things and it's really important to do that because the only way to learn is to test. The only way to learn is to test. And so if you take your career and think about it like a laboratory, those early years are where you should be doing experiments in the laboratory to figure out what you like. People who know themselves better after going through those experiments are going to make better choices in their career and be happier in their lives and are going to optimize the things they're doing. And so, so many people, I think, think of college as this high-stakes situation where they're trying to pick the path for them and not make any mistakes. Totally understand. Again, I understand how hard it is to get into graduate school or professional school, all that. But college is one of those last time when you can really experiment to figure out what it is you're supposed to do. And so if you join that club or you take that course or you make that friendship that tells you something about who you are, that is valuable information that you can use to, to navigate the next choice. And so when I meet people later in their career who have these crises or they chose the wrong thing or it turned out they weren't happy, it's often because they didn't learn that back in college. And so I think thinking about if you're able to, your college experience as a laboratory to test ideas about yourself, figure out who you are on a bunch of different dimensions, is one thing that I think is really important. The second thing is I think, while it's really important to ask for advice of other people, a lot of advice that people give is very centered on themselves. I might tell you to do exactly the same thing I do because it worked for me. Here's the problem. We're different people, different skills. Two is the world has changed and the path I recommend may not be open anymore in this different world. You know, you, you have the stories from the old folks who say, I walked to Main Street and I just had a firm handshake and I got the job on the first day. Nobody gets jobs like that anymore, right? It's, to it's totally different. So while a firm handshake might have been great, you, you need a different skill set now. And so the advice I give you might be totally outdated. And that's why I think running experiments and learning about yourself can make you your own best advisor. Because while the advice of other people can be inspirational, I think it's very rarely prescriptive in terms of what you should do. They, no one can know you that well or know themselves that well to give you the right advice.
yourself. So I feel like becoming your own best advisor through a series of experiments is how I would look back at the things that I did in college. And uh, I, you know, I think it, I mean, I learned that through a bunch of different ups and downs, but uh, that's probably what I would have told myself freshman year. I think a critical skill right now is learning how to give a firm handshake over Zoom. Um, <laughs> exactly. All you need to get the job, the firm handshake over Zoom. Exactly. We got to work it out. I'm not really sure if it's more of a like forward or like a sideways motion, but I think it is definitely something we have to explore. Yeah, you don't even, need a, don't even need a resume. Just shake the hand strong and you're going to get that job and lifetime employment and a pension. You know, but exactly. The, I, would, I mean, I grew up in the 90s, graduated from college in 2000, graduated from grad school in 06. So the things that I, you know, I have some relevant, I teach at a school, so I, I know a lot about students your age, but it's like, you know, some of the advice I give you might not be applicable to what you're doing in the world now. Some of it might, but, you know, I, I just think about this as a parent, too. My kids are obviously really young, but I think, I think about that in terms of the advice I give them and how the world has changed. Um, and so that's why I think training people to be experimental and test and learn with their own path is actually the best advice I could give someone. So how do you feel about your students and the paths that they're taking? So do you, are they very interactive with you and are you learning things from them, like carrying them on into your campaign or like how you're approaching certain issues going forward? Yeah, I mean, so two parts to that. One is the, 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 the work I do in the classrooms. I teach business students at the Fugal School of Business right now. Well, I've done sabbatical right now, but you know, currently in my career. And they tend to be, you know, between 28 and 30 years old. They've come back to school. Um, it's fantastic experience. I mean, they are definitely interactive. They're willing and interested in learning new material. And we're helping launch them after two years into the next stage of their careers. And so that's been very satisfying. Uh, I've learned more from them than they learn from me. And we build really strong moms. So that's amazing. And that class that I teach right now is on business strategy and how businesses can navigate political environments. So it's a lot about the things I'm doing, but it's also just related to the jobs they're going to have in consulting, banking, healthcare, retail, uh, or running a small business. So when it comes to them getting involved, they've inspired me in a ton of ways. I mean, my students have organized Zoom events for me. They've sent me words of encouragement. That's probably the coolest thing about being a professor doing this is you just have this group of people that you've interacted with over the years and they come back in your lives with positive vibes and energy and some of them are super interested in politics and I knew it at the time where I didn't know it and some of them just want to support me and they're not any Democrats or they're not into this whole thing and that actually means a lot too because if somebody just wants to support you you know for what you're doing so that's been really great and it's been one of the things I think that you know I will always be a professor I'll always be a teacher at heart and I will find a way to make those connections. And it's just important to me. It's something I want to do all my life. Um, and I think this campaign has taught me the impact you make that sometimes you don't even realize as a professor. So speaking of like impact, what impact do you think young AAPI specifically in North Carolina are going to have on this election cycle, seeing that like you interact with them a lot? In your heart, what vibes are you getting <laughs> from the young AAPIs? I see a ton of excitement. And especially um, with Kamala Harris's pick, it was really cool to see, you know, I mean, you guys saw, I mean, I, and I tweeted about this, I mean, when she said that her mother taught her to be a strong black woman, but she also told her to be part, proud of her Indian heritage. I mean, seeing those two things together, we've never seen a combination like that. That's amazing. And linking us all together in so many different ways, right? And I think so many young AAPI people were excited to see Kamala Harris, her story, seeing her mother on the screen. Oh my gosh, it's, it's amazing. And so... I think that that is going to be a jolt of energy uh, for the API community. I expect her to be really active here and speaking to young voters a lot um, in person over Zoom, whatever the right medium is. So I'm getting good vibes from that. I do think that more people will pay attention after Labor Day to who's running for these offices. And I hope that if they're an API 
young people in North Carolina who don't yet know I'm running, but definitely are, that we can connect, um, you know, and, and they know that. Because I think I, there's probably a lot of untapped potential there. But I feel like there's a real engagement in the election, I'm hopeful. Um, but, you know, per soon of your last question, I mean, COVID is having a huge impact on people's plans for school and work. And that stuff is, is more dominant in people's lives than the presidential election for most people. And I get that. You know, when your livelihood's on the line, when your school's up in the air, it's hard to think about other things. And so I think that is probably, if anything, dulled some interest in these things. And, you know, hopefully we can get these important things right and life is back to normal. People can pay more attention to, you know, politics and things like that. But that would be the only countervailing force, I think, with human enthusiasm. Yeah, and I think it's really important, especially you brought up the point with Kamala Harris, of seeing people that look like us and having representation. I know when I heard her speech at the DNC, that was like really big for me because I saw a lot of parallels between her life and mine. Like my mom came here for um, like med school and then I was born in California, just like Kamala Harris. And my mom instilled in me values of like public service and politics. And that's really what got me into doing everything I do with politics. So for people that look up to you um, for representation and that want to kind of follow in your footsteps, what advice would you have for those people? Well, first of all, I mean, if they choose me to be someone that they, you know, see as a role model, I mean, thank you for the trust and um, I will try to live up to it. The second thing I'd say is you know, come talk to me, seek me out. I mean, I think that I try to make time for people who I can. It's, it's getting harder and harder as we're running for office, but I will try. And if not, um, if I can't do it in the moment, hopefully I can do it eventually. And I, I try to answer my emails even if I'm two years behind. So some people get these emails from me two years later, like I, I even forgot I sent that email, but I try to keep them. So definitely try to reach out. It would be love to hear from folks. And I think the key thing is it's, it, it's sad to think how many times we've gone back to Indian matrimonials and matchmaking, but being able to see different models of Indian Americans in office and Asian Americans in office. I mean, you have people like Tammy Duckworth in Illinois, completely different story than mine, but fantastically successful. You have people like Ro Khanna and Raja Krishnamurthy, Grace Meng up in New York, Kamala Harris, all different stories. And so if you've chosen mine to be inspiring, I think the things that are salient about mine are sort of the academic path, bringing kind of a PhD mindset to a really technical job. If that resonates with you, focus on your state and local. I think that's a key. Focus on public finance and economic issues. And that, particularly if you're a Democrat, will form, I think, a great foundation to be part of a bench that the party needs all across this country. But if, it, if someone else resonates with you from the AAPI community, maybe you're a veteran, right? Maybe you, you know, have heritage to the Philippines and one of the congressional candidates is exciting because they have that background. That makes sense to me. So if you choose me, I think that's kind of where I would go. And I would say again, um, no one will believe in you unless you believe in yourself first. So if you're waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I got this life planned out for you. You ought to do this. It's never going to happen. And for most people, I don't think it will ever happen. So you have to believe you can do it. And you have to convince other people you can do it. And if, you could, if you're asking the question, are people ready for a person with this last name or from that background, other people are going to have the same question back. So you have to go forward and say, I have the confidence to think that I can do this. And that's going to bring people to your side. And I think that'd be true of any of the people that I mentioned, amazing pioneers in the API community. I think my big, like, obviously, great takeaways from that speech. But if you want to get in contact with Ronnie over here, just email him with the subject header chat with Chatterjee, and he'll know. That is, like, uh, you listen to this podcast, you stayed in for 45 minutes, and you took everything and said, I want to chat with this man. This is how we're going to do it. Love it. That subject line, I will definitely respond to you. That's, you're, you're right. You're right, Shia. I will respond to that. I will know that you listened to the podcast and went all the way. I love it. I love it. Okay, no good podcast is ever complete without a couple of questions, just to get to know the person. So, Ronnie, are you ready? 
I'm ready. All right, favorite ice cream flavor, go. Uh, cookie dough, chocolate cookie dough. Is favorite song. Oh. oh, favorite song. Favorite song is Saturday Sun by Vance Joy. Right. Favorite artist. Oh, favorite um, like visual artist or recording artist. Let me just clarify. Both. Oh, interesting. <laughs> my favorite, my favorite artist is a singer songwriter named Don McLean who wrote the song American Pie. I love all his music. And um, and my favorite artist is probably Raphael. Who you can see this behind me. Um, this is a play on the School of Athens, which is one of his famous paintings. So that would be probably my favorite artist. Yeah, I was just going to ask about the paintings. But, <laughs> there you um, go. For those of you What's listening, Ronnie has this like majestic painting behind his head <laughs> of like people. Ronnie, would you like to describe this painting? It's, so Raphael's School of Athens has all these folks, these great minds, intellects, like all discussing the issues of the day. Behind me is an updated version of that, a print with people like Barack Obama, Mother Teresa, and others representing this painting. It was um, done by a local consulting firm to show actually how they are thinking about how to solve business problems was getting influenced by all these different strains of thought. So kind of a business school take on the School of Athens and uh, Raphael. So that's, uh, that's what's behind me. That's kind of my, my although I have to say it's been, a, I, I spent a lot more time listening to my recording artists than I do looking at fine art these days. So that, you know, that, that's, that's something more of an aspirational hobby, I'd say. <laughs> for, something, for something visual, what's your favorite movie? Oh, favorite movie. <laughs> this is all going to tell people crazy stuff about me. Heather's is my favorite movie. It's a high school movie. You, you guys so probably good. are. Like, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. I know the they've musical. tried to make remakes. It's, yeah. Heather's is amazing. And Christian Slater and, um, and particularly Winona Ryder are, are fantastic in that movie. Um, I've watched that movie hundreds, a hundred times. <laughs> I also love how it kind of closed the book on this era of really like sweet eighties movies and, and, and kind of gave a, I'm really into that kind of alternative take, even though it's funny, I'm like a very uplifting, sunny kind of guy for sure. But those kind of movies I've always liked. So yeah, so Heather's is by far my favorite. Speaking of Heather, since Heather's is also musical and you obviously listen to Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> favorite musical, favorite song. Oh. Favorite musical is probably Hamilton right now. Although in the past, um, I was I was a as a kid I was in a king I was in the King and I, and so I really liked the King and I, which is like an old an old musical. But Hamilton is definitely my favorite right now, and I definitely I listen to basically the theme song, the key line. I I actually I watch on my run. I listen to a YouTube clip of. Lin Manuel Miranda doing that at the White House, where he does kind of the you know solo version of the Hamilton theme, and which which I love, and uh, you know young young scrappy, all all that. I just love that whole thing. <laughs> it's all the hip hop references, it's amazing. So yeah, Hamilton's my favorite one right now. I love I to listen to Hamilton while I do AP Gov homework. <laughs> <laughs> that is inspiring. It's a good tie-in. I, I agree. With you. I agree. With you. I I like that. In 2016, they used to make fun of all the Hamilton kids who were fans and like AP US history. We would all go hard and we got made fun of. And all of a sudden, everybody hopped on the bandwagon. So See, and you were early. You will always have be able to say you were early on that. Now, most people have just you know forgotten that, but you, you were early. I agree. But the challenge is when you're early on something, but people haven't yet jumped on the bandwagon. So you're continuously being like, one day, you're really going to think that this band is cool and they just never end up being cool. So that, that's, that's the challenge I've, you know, I've had many times. I'm assuming you watched Hamilton on Disney Plus. Actually, we have not yet. It's on our list. A great idea. The kids actually want to watch it too. We have not done that. And I, I'm kind of like hesitating getting another streaming service because I just feel like we Netflix, Amazon, we're just have YouTube TV. We have so much stuff. And I'm just like, oh, one more just to watch. But you know, the kids do want to see Star Wars. And uh, I'd be really excited to show them Star Wars. Um, four, five, and six, you know, the ones that chronologically I saw first. And so I really want to, I want them to see those. They saw E.T., which they loved. 
and they're too young for Back to the Future, so this is kind of like the bridge movie we're gonna have to get into right now. Your kids had like the best movie list planned out for them. <laughs> yeah, they, for their sure. their ET was like phenomenal. I'm sitting there when I mean I had barely remembered it when I was a kid, but there's that magical scene where they're biking to the moon, and my kids are just like because you know the, the production values aren't that great or anything. It's it's old, so they're asking a lot of questions like what are those. <laughs> attached to the wall like I said that's a phone I said why are they walking around with it attached to the wall said, oh that's how phones used to be and they're like how come the phone doesn't have a video and I'm, I just I just stop <laughs> just just watch right but despite all their skepticism when they see that bicycle going into the moonlight my kids eyes lit up the same way Steven Spielberg wanted them to in 1980 whatever it was and I thought there's some things that are timeless right some things like cell phones you can't explain away but some things are timeless so I hope they feel the same way about Star Wars and Back to the Future pools I think I just had an identity crisis realizing that kids don't know what wall phones are anymore. <laughs> oh, oh, my kids don't understand. My kids don't recognize a phone without a video screen. So it's, it's very different. Wow. <laughs> well, a lot of things are timeless, but unfortunately this podcast is not, actually it will be timeless because this will be on social media for years. Oh, that was the segue. I thought that was very, very smart. You know, we didn't plan that at all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> they say everything on social media is permanent, so I think when Ronnie's like 50, 60 years old, he's going to pull this up and be like, hey kids, here's me talking about E.T. when y'all were yeah. prepubescent. <laughs> so, thank you so much, Ronnie, for coming out and talking to us and laughing with my ba like dad jokes. I pride myself on them, so... Great dad jokes. Really great. <laughs> great dad jokes. I gotta get more. I'm a dad and I need better dad jokes. I, I, I'm excited to, to learn from you. It's when you become a dog parent, truthfully, that you start cracking them, like left and right. This is true. This is true. Um, <laughs> do you have any pets? No, but there is this push in the charity household for a pandemic dog. And so I, we, <laughs> that's a conversation every morning that we're thinking about. A very I second that motion. I yeah. think that is a fantastic Yeah, I've been they're trying to push for one dogs. Too. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's been interesting. So yeah, we'll see who wins that one. Uh, you know, by the end of the, by the end of this thing, you know, we, the kids may have won that one. Be your campaign mascot. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And all of our presidents have liked dogs, except for Trump, weirdly. So, you know, maybe there's some <laughs> There we go. I, dogs are precious. And also the Senate is like dog friendly. I've seen TikToks of like, them. I didn't know that. That's yeah. so cool. So they're like yeah. raiding all the dogs in the Senate, but whatever. Again, thank you so much, Ronnie, for spending your Monday night talking to a bunch of teenagers and giving us life advice because it's so cool to see somebody so engaged with our API youth outreach and like the initiatives we want to take moving forward. So if you're listening to this and you want to get involved, go to RonnieChatterjee.com or Ronnie, are there any words you have to say for people who are like starting to press pause on this podcast and like getting out just of Just wait, just wait. No, thank you for the opportunity. Like why I ran these conversations. Keep up the good work, stay engaged and uh, keep doing cool stuff like this. And I'll, I'll help out however I can. I'm proud to be part of the community. All right, you're here to hear first folks. Get involved. This shouldn't be where the first place you heard it, but in case it was, you heard it here first. If you want to get involved, follow Yaspi on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Yasbiden, Y-A-A-S-B-I-D-E-N, and we'll see you on November 3rd. Thank you, everybody, for your time today, and I hope you have a great night. Um, Thank you. Okay, let's, Thank let's you. Come, come to, um, you're on our email list now, right? So just come to like our next Zoom. We're doing one with Vivek Murthy. 
We'll do another one with Ambassador Verma on some US India stuff, but then we're doing stuff with a lot of Biden people. Um, there's one on September 1st with Jake Sullivan, who's kind of his policy director. So whatever you guys are interested in, let me know. And uh, if you see cool stuff you think I should be showing up at, just, just ping me. Yeah, totally. We'll do, yeah. Cool. Thank you so much to Shia, Ishani, and Ronnie Chatterjee for joining us today on the podcast. Remember, for everyone voting in North Carolina, that your registration deadline is a week from today, on October 9th, and early voting begins on October 15th. For more information on registering to vote, checking your registration status, how to vote by mail, your local polling location, and any ID requirements necessary to vote, you can visit IWillVote.com, APIAVote.org, or bit.ly slash yasbvote. That is bit.ly slash yaasbvote. Please remember to bring your ID with you, bring any necessary voting materials, and if you can, bring your family and your friends along with you. This is our year to change the country, and it begins with voting and organizing in your local communities in states like North Carolina. If you like our podcast, subscribe to get new episodes, and share with a friend or two. We definitely stand relational organizing here at Yaspi. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you next time on Yas Tea.